Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. Hey, one more thing. Do you want to dive more into the ocean and marine biology? Need a little guidance on ocean conservation? Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources. We've got book recommendations, job posting pages, conference suggestions, and ocean-friendly products. All recommendations have been personally vetted by me, and I will continue to add to the collection as I come across cool things to share. Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources to learn more. See you over there. Have you ever wanted to explore the underwater realm but aren't sure how to get dive certified? I've got you covered. Head over to marinebio.life slash scuba for beginners and grab your copy of my new scuba guide. In it, I cover the different certifying agencies, gear, lingo, and the number one thing to look out for when you're getting certified. This guide will leave you confident in how to become certified and ready to dive in. Head on over to marinebio.life slash scuba for beginners to get your copy and get diving already. marinebio.life slash scuba for beginners. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. Question, what happened to the diver's journal? It got waterlogged. Why is the sand so quiet? Because the waves keep going, shh. William Truebridge is the world's deepest man with an unassisted freediving record to 102 meters or 334 feet. He holds 18 freediving records and six world champion titles and is able to hold his breath for over seven minutes. William has spent an extraordinary amount of time in and around the ocean in his lifetime, completing challenges such as an underwater crossing of the Cook Strait, and this was in New Zealand, in order to raise awareness of an endemic dolphin species there, the Hector dolphin. He offers a fascinating way of translating his freediving techniques into the everyday world, and he shares them here. Please enjoy. William, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist. I am so excited to chat with you today. Thanks, Kara. So am I. So getting into freediving, I mean, you've learned to swim at age two. I read that you were freediving at age eight to 15 meters, which is like 45-ish feet. I mean, that's not typical for most eight-year-olds. What inspired that? Well, we were living on a sailing boat at the time, and my family sold the house that we had in the north of England to buy a, a sailing boat in 1982. And we sailed from Europe across the Atlantic through the Caribbean, Panama Canal, and the Pacific to get to New Zealand in 85 when I was five years old. And then we went back to the tropics as well to tour around Vanuatu and New Caledonia. And in that time, we were just always in the water, myself and my brother. We were kind of looking for shells, diving on the reefs. And as part of that, obviously, the rivalry took us to to greater and greater depths. Um, we'd measure it with the, the depth sounder on the boat to find out how deep we were, we'd been. And yeah, the deepest one was about 45, 50 feet. That's impressive. But you didn't get really started into the career of freediving, really, until you're into your 20s. What inspired that? 
Yeah. So afterwards, I uh, we sold the boat, and I had a kind of a normal upbringing in New Zealand. But I went on what we call an OE overseas experience after mm -hmm. university. I studied biology at university, and during that, I heard about the sport of freediving, and it mm -hmm. kind of rekindled this this interest or this passion that I had for the ocean, which I didn't really realize was there. But if I look back, I can see all the signs that it was like waiting to come back to come out. And when I heard about the sport, I decided to travel to Belize and Honduras to try it and brought some kind of rudimentary freediving equipment and spent three months, I think, just living on an island and diving every day, morning and afternoon. The scuba diving boats, they would take the, the, the divers off scuba and I would kind of be by myself, which was very dangerous, but I didn't know at the time. And just diving on the reef and playing around or lying on the bottom. And that's where the passion for freediving was really took off. Yeah. And I didn't realize that there was such an intense like training program that you go through or that you can go through. So you went to one in Italy. I went to a course in Italy with Umberto Perazzari, who's the Italian maestro. He's set world records in the 90s. And took his course and after that kind of stuck around to train with him and continue my my education and, and freediving and learn more and i learned italian and spent a few years living in italy but it wasn't until i moved to the bahamas and found dean's blue hole mm -hmm. that i really was able to kind of switch up a gear and improve my my depth yeah so what drives the like need to go deeper i mean you you're the world's deepest man right like that's an incredible title and i mean to go that deep is unfathomable for many people myself included i can't even imagine going over 300 feet by in a single breath hold but what drives that i feel like you're still like playing competition with your brother does your brother free dive too <laughs> <laughs> he does but just to spearfish um, okay. to to get kind of power and fish from the reefs and in, in new zealand no it's the driving force would have to be just kind of this i mean there's a, there's actually a few one is i i thrive on a challenge mm. and in the past those challenges have been either physical case of sports like rowing and other sports I've played, or they've been purely mental. For a while, I was uh, uh, kind of playing chess a lot and uh, winning competitions and doing well, but it was just purely mental. So I kind of had all this agitated physical energy that wanted to come out. And mm -hmm. freediving is a mental and physical challenge, 100% mm -hmm. of both. And so mm -hmm. it really gave me this holistic kind of satiation in terms of that need to to be challenged but beyond that it's the exploration of of part of freediving that really i think drives me forwards because we are exploring not just the, the the waters themselves but we're exploring our own capacity the human aquatic potential how deep are we as a species how well can we be aquatic mammals and the answer is obviously not as good as as dolphins or whales who have spent 
millions of years evolving to where they are, but not too bad considering that we only have one lifetime to to evolve back into an aquatic mammal. So <laughs> that's that's really kind of a driving force for me. We've we've explored the realms of human potential a lot above the surface. Yeah. How high can we climb? How fast can we run? All those kind of things. But the liquid realm is still mostly uncharted in terms of our own human potential. That's a really good point. So I didn't realize that you have a degree in biology, and I'm really curious how, or if at all, it kind of tied in with your free diving, because there is some biology that's definitely happening with the mammalian dive reflex as you get deeper mm-hmm. and all that fun stuff. Yeah, I think it helped, that background in the sciences helped in the sport of freediving because so little is known about our physiology and what's going on, the physics of it, that it helps to have that kind of ability to investigate or experiment on yourself, I guess. And I only, I, my degree was in uh, mostly in genetics and I worked for a year as a genetic engineer in Auckland before I went traveling. So I haven't used it other than just the the kind of the scientific method, I guess, mm-hmm. as part of my training, as part of the way that I, I dive. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. I'm looking at this poster behind you, and I wasn't going to bring it up, but I really like it. Think less, feel more. I was like, is this your mantra as you're diving? Uh, it, it definitely helps, yeah. And that particular mantra is, is hers and it's Wonderful. yeah like knowing her has kind of allowed me to see another side of of that accessing the intuition i guess mm. uh, which is is what that that quote is about but definitely as part of freediving we want to be able to slow down our thoughts and there are numerous different mental techniques that we employ to do that but even if you don't have techniques for it, I feel like the water being in the in the sea has that effect by itself. It's really difficult, even if you're just kind of splashing about in the waves on the beach, it's difficult to hold on to kind of worries about the future or like past kind of emotional things that keep mm-hmm. on welling up. Like when we're in the water, those tend to just dissolve away to a certain extent. And that's even the more so underwater. So the deeper you go, the more it strips away those those kind of concerns. Yeah. I watched your TED Talk, and it was a really poetic way of going through it and kind of being part of the stripping away of all the emotions. But I feel like going into a dive, right, like your world record-breaking dives, you've done several of them now, there has to be some mental gymnastics that you're going through, right? You're not just diving 30 feet down and like you can see the surface like cake, right? You can just come right back up like you're diving really deep. What are some of the things that you're that are going through your head that you're kind of like talking to yourself about before you do that? Mm. Yeah, you're right. There is definitely gymnastics involved and particularly before the the dive itself. Typically, we will announce an attempt the night before if it's a competition you have to kind of post your announcement Mm. but even for a world record attempt you'll decide uh, and training as well you'll decide on the depth the night before Mm. and that whole period of 12 16 hours up until the dive if you are in the wrong mindset and you're starting to kind of like 
churn, these these thought patterns, a lot of which can be kind of like a negative downward spiral, then you will be activating the sympathetic nervous system. So you'll be going into fight or flight mode to a certain extent, mm-hmm. which doesn't allow you to to rest and to prepare properly as well as it's a lot less oxygen efficient if you take that into the dive. So the preparation for a free dive, this kind of level is, is everything. And I sometimes say to myself, or tell people that the dive is decided before I take that last breath. If I've been able to stay calm, not over breathe as well, which is another thing. Hyperventilation is a, mm-hmm. is a, is a kind of a nemesis in free diving. If I've got that initial conditions right, I've nailed it, then the dive itself is fairly routine because I've done these dives so many times and I've programmed the subconscious mind to kind of take over, take over the wheel. And that allows the rational waking mind to just shut down and go the flow. So, Yeah. yeah, it is all about trying to minimize those kind of negative thought patterns and stress before the dive itself yeah do you have any thoughts i mean you've done it so many times now that it may not affect you as much but initially when you were starting to dive and like the light is diminishing what was that like for you was that trippy at all were you just kind of in your meditative mental state yeah the first time it happened i think to a great extent was in Dean's blue hole because yeah. there depends on the clarity of the water. If there's a big swell on the reef, it churns the water up. So mm-hmm. the visibility is reduced, but even on a good day, the light can only come in from directly overhead. And mm-hmm. so once you get past about 30, 40 meters, it does go dim. And on a bad day, it can be pitch dark from 60, 70 meters. Mm-hmm. So yeah, definitely that took some getting used to. But already in my diving, I had switched to mostly keeping my eyes closed during the dives. In terms of free immersion, which is the one where we can pull ourselves down and up on the rope. So we okay. use the rope to, to swim, basically. In those dives, I keep my eyes closed the whole dive because I'm always in contact with the rope. Even in the free fall, I have mm-hmm. it kind of brushing on my forehead. Even no fins. On the way down, I, I swim to about 25, 30 meters. And then from there, I free fall again with my eyes closed. Right. So I'm not even aware of the, the encroaching darkness. Okay. And when I turn and start to come up, yeah, it can be difficult to see the rope. But I, as long as I can just make it out, then that's enough. And I kind of have my eyes closed and blink them open. So just every couple of seconds, just open them enough to ch- check my position. Mm. And if I need to make an adjustment, I do that. But otherwise, I guess maybe 80, 90% of the time they're closed. That makes sense. That would help <laughs> to fight off any of the panic of also when you're on your way back up, looking at the surface and being like, kind of far. <laughs> mm. No, we never, never look up for various reasons. It also elongates the trachea, which causes can cause an injury Mm. Um, but yeah if you look up and you don't see anything other than the tiny kind of blurred window of light then it's not too encouraging (laughs) yeah definitely not so your free diving and the amazing records that you've done and all your accomplishments have really given you 
quite a platform, quite recognition. And I love that you're kind of taking this and shining light on some different conservation issues with it. So, and I don't know if this is one of the first ones, but it seemed like it was with the uh, True Blue Foundation and the Hector and Maui dolphins. Would you speak a little bit about them and the cause and, you know, why this kind of spoke to your heart? Mm. So when in 2010, I was getting ready to do a world record attempt to 100 meters, it would be the first 100 meter no fin dive in history. And I found out that 100 meters is actually called a hectometer, which I didn't know before that. And when I looked, I, I decided to call it Project Hector. And when I looked up Hector in the dictionary, it took me to the Hector's dolphins in New mm. Zealand, which I probably had heard of before, but I was only kind of vaguely aware of them and definitely didn't know about the situation that they're in, mm -hmm. which is that they're threatened with extinction. There's a subspecies of the Hector's dolphin, the Maui's dolphin, which is only found on the territory of the west coast of the North Island. And there are only, I think, 50 or so remaining breeding adults in, mm -hmm. in the Maui's dolphins. So they're kind of headed in the in the same direction as the Vaquita dolphin, which is is really concerning. And so I I did the dive in that case to raise awareness of their situation. And since then there have been some changes. They're not still not sufficient, but uh, at least the government now is being more proactive about it. I, I don't claim. That have made that change myself because there's a, a a lot of incredible conservation agencies in New Zealand who have been working for mm. a lot longer than myself and a lot more kind of thoroughly on this. So, yeah, it, it's they're not out of the out of the woods yet, but um, it's it, it's really important. I think biodiversity is is one of those things that kind of. With all the other issues like climate change and everything, it doesn't seem as important. Like if we lose a species of of beetle or frog or mm -hmm. dolphin, how does that kind of impact most people? But I think biodiversity is what makes our our world the way it is yes. um, and gives it the, the richness and the value. And we need to hang on to every piece of that. Absolutely. The other part of that is, is we just don't know, right? Like we're constantly learning more about the natural world and relearning things that we missed the first time or overlooked. And so if a species goes extinct, you don't know where in the web of life on earth that played and what impact it may have down the road. So, so important. I totally agree. One of your other initiatives that we've definitely talked about quite a bit on the show, because if you spend any time in the ocean, it's heartbreaking to see is plastic and pollution. So what was kind of the first or first time you saw plastic or the time that kind of like really made an impact on you that you were like, I have to like use my platform and shine a light on this issue and do what I can. Mm. Yeah, definitely. The first time was a visiting when I first went to Bahamas to dive in Dean's Blue Hole, which was at the end of 2005. And here we have this kind of incredible place. It's a 200 meter deep sinkhole in the corner of a lagoon, beautiful white sand beach. It's all protected from on almost all four sides from the wind and the weather. But it kind of acts as like a little bit of a trap for 
anything that's that's ocean born whether that's seaweed or plastic that's that's floating on the surface so it comes in and then gets washed up onto the beach or floats around in the blue hole and in that first year that I was there I would often go back in the afternoon after my training and just kind of walk along the beach with a bucket and and pick up this plastic and try and keep at least that one beach clean because there's many other beaches on the island that are just as bad or worse mm-hmm. and many other islands in the Bahamas that are all the same but it was kind of my way of just like giving back a little bit and I wasn't doing anything more than that but as the situation started to worsen and there were some years where depending on the kind of hurricanes or the currents we would get this just absolute awashed with with plastic mm-hmm. and the surface of the blue hole that the beach would just be kind of carpeted with it and you, there's no way that we could kind of clean it up by mm-hmm. ourselves and then other beaches would just be like a layer of mm. of thick kind of carpet of of, of plastic mm. and that's when i i i started to look into it more and i um uh, got in touch with Doug Woodring who's one of the kind of founding fathers of plastic pollution research he was one of the first people to discover and visit the the gyre in the north mm. of the pacific um and it set up a lot of different institutions like the plastic pollution coalition and yeah he gave me some ideas about what could be done and at the same time as that I was looking into the fact that a huge amount of this plastic is just one particular item or one product which is these little water bags that are produced in the caribbean probably other countries as well and they hold i think 250 or 500 500 ml of water and basically it's just a bag that someone can chew off one of the corner squirt the contents into their mouth and then toss the bag and in countries like Haiti Dominican Republic where they're living hand to mouth this is the cheapest way of getting water and they have no absolutely no understanding of pollution or biodegradability or any of these concepts mm-hmm. in fact even in the bahamas which is probably one of the most educated countries of the caribbean islands i did a talk at one of the high schools uh, to raise a kind of to raise up this topic and talk about plastic pollution and after the talk one of the teachers came to me and said oh i'm so so glad you did this talk because i didn't realize that plastics weren't biodegradable I didn't realize it was a problem this is the teacher in a country like the bahamas so if that's the case there then you can imagine that countries like haiti or dominican republic is just non-existent and all the trash is by the side of the road it gets washed into the rivers or if there's a hurricane it blows everything that's at the dump out to sea that's where most of this is probably coming from wow Your story with the teacher is impressive. So it's really eye-opening. I guess is a better mm. way to phrase that. It's because it's easy for us to to think like how stupid are these people they're just like tossing their stuff away. But yeah. for them they can't correlate the trash that they're they're tossing aside or using with this problem or with the fact that there's less fish in the sea or the ecosystems are are collapsing. Right. Or they wouldn't even know 
that an ecosystem could collapse. They just would assume that it's it's the natural state of things. That's fascinating. Yeah, because you like the fisher communities would witness the fishing, right? Like the ecosystems changing and shifting like that, but it may not make that correlation with the plastic. Or even with their own practice, or even with overfishing. They'll always, even in the Bahamas, the blame goes elsewhere. Okay, it's the Dominican poachers <laughs> or this or that. But yeah, no one is able to kind of see the correlation with the part they're playing in this. So that's a big obstacle. And I, it's something that I've been working uh, with a little bit um, in the Bahamas and elsewhere. To be 100% honest, uh, since starting a family, it's been more difficult mm-hmm. to kind of keep up the conservation side as well. So I haven't done as much promotional work there as I, I would like to. But it's definitely something that's kind of important to me. Yeah, sure. absolutely. Time and place for everything, right? We're talking about it now. <laughs> so coming back to freediving. So I, I did take a freediving course here in Florida. Teach Me to Freedive was like the name of the company. But I loved it. And what I went into it, because I grew up in Florida and we play in the water and, you know, I freedive a little bit but had no technique and no experience. And what I got most out of the freediving class after, you know, the first 30 minutes of all the ways that you could die freediving after we got through that bit was how to breathe. That was like the mm-hmm. biggest takeaway I got from the freediving class. And I can't tell you how much it has translated into everyday life, just how to properly breathe. And it really is mm-hmm. kind of everything. So I'm really curious for you. I know, again, I watched your TED talk and you had like you demonstrated a breathing technique which i had never seen never heard of before so do you have different techniques one for free diving and two like what how do they translate into everyday life yeah breathing is, is a huge part of, of free diving of course uh those techniques extend from the most basic side of it which is just accessing your diaphragm and breathing into your belly uh, mm-hmm. to inflate the most voluminous portions of your lungs, which are at the base because it's shaped like a, a pyramid, right? And it extends all the way up to the most advanced techniques, which is where we are using different muscles, like a, actually our mouth as a pump or using the abdominal muscles in concert with the thoracic muscles to both deflate and inflate the lungs past their normal range Mm -hmm. so after a full exhale i can't push any more air out with my normal breathing muscles but i can still get a lot of air out by using the mouth to create a vacuum and bring it up that way so creating that vacuum to bring air into the cheeks and then squirting it out and doing that repetitively and that enables you to go a lot lower than residual volume of the lungs which stretches them with negative internal pressure that prepares you for what's going to happen at depth because past about 30 meters we actually reach that residual volume and if you go deeper your lung volume internally is going to be less than what it is after a full exhale Mm -hmm. so if you cannot accommodate that pressure change that's when injury occurs similarly we also work to expand the lungs 
past the point of a normal inhale. And again, we use the mouth to do that. And it's a technique called packing or kapa. And that enables you to load more air on before the start of the dive so that you have more oxygen and you also have more volume of air to equalize with. Of those two, the most important by far is actually working on the negative side, the residual volume and decreasing Mm. that. But yeah, they're both important. You have to stretch the lungs in both directions. Yeah. So the negative side, you would mostly just do that on land, right? You're not like, are you practicing that in the water as well? Yes, yeah, I am. Yeah. So um, doing like a full exhale on the surface and then dropping down to 20, okay. 30 meters. So you get, you already start off with empty lungs, but then okay. at 30 meters, it's a quarter of that. Or even on the surface, reverse packing so that you go below residue volume and then dropping down. Gotcha. Uh, so those are very, very advanced. Like I definitely don't recommend yeah. this for a beginner or even <laughs> Don't try this after the, listening to the podcast. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, but just to give you an idea of kind of the range, like everything is important and you have to start off with the, the, the basic stuff, which is diaphragmatic breathing, accessing like a three-part breath and then build on that. Yeah, and that makes sense. You're working to stretch the lungs both ways, right? Because they are go undergoing, and we I mentioned earlier the mammalian diving reflex, right? So like whales and dolphins have it, like everything shrinks. Like if you take a can or a, even better, like a plastic cup and you push it into depth, it shrinks, right? So similarly, our lungs do that. And they pop back up. Can does not for listeners that haven't mm. tried that yet. But our lungs will shrink and then they'll come back up. So that's kind of what you're simulating. Exactly. The analogy I make is, is like you have a balloon or a glass bottle and ribcage, our thorax, is kind of between the two. It's not as flexible as a balloon, but it's not brittle like a, a bottle. Mm-hmm. And the more like the, the, the balloon we can be, the more we can accommodate the depth. And whales and dolphins, they don't have cartilage in their rigid airways. So their lungs can completely collapse mm-hmm. and they don't feel the the pressure anywhere mm-hmm. but we that creates problems for them of course when they beach because the weight of their body just collapses the lungs and they they can't breathe so we have the, the inverse problem and in that the rigidity sometimes creates problems for us underwater still trying to become an aquatic mammal again though i like it mm. <laughs> <laughs> so what techniques or what do you translate onto land? I saw that you have a new, is it a course, an online course? And is it just taking these techniques that you learned free diving and applying them on land? So what can we take from free diving into our everyday lives? Yeah, what I started noticing is that these same techniques, both the breathing and the mental techniques that we talked about, they have enormous application to the kinds of day-to-day pressures i mean they were developed for tolerating pressure in a, in a free dive right but the a free dive is kind of like a test tube experiment in <laughs> stress or anxiety management and the techniques that we use there have to be like 100 rock sod which means that in other kinds of versions of, of stress and anxiety they have really good application And I feel like it has to be this kind of double-pronged approach Mm -hmm. of mental and physical because stress is both mental and physical, right? There's this kind of feedback loop between the thoughts that we have, which activate the amygdala and hippocampus, and that releases 
the uh, stress hormones, cortisol and adrenaline, which changes your physical state. And then there's a feedback from your physical state and that your breathing changes. And then the, the stretch receptors and the parts of your breathing muscles send signals back to your brain saying we're stressed. Mm -hmm. And so that cultivates more negative thought patterns and around and around we go, right? And it's mm -hmm. this kind of death spiral where you just go around but downwards. Mm -hmm. And so that's the way stress works. So we have to have a mental and a physical approach to resolving it. And the physical side is the breathing, grounding the breathing in not just diaphragmatic, but nasal breathing as well. And I go through uh, various other aspects of this kind of anchoring, grounding breath that activates the parasympathetic nervous system, the calming nervous system. Mm -hmm. And then as well as that, the mental side of it is about disassociating ourselves from the stress, from the emotions, um, so that we can kind of have perspective on what exactly that is and remain on the other side of this kind of invincible glass barrier so that it, it doesn't affect us mentally. We don't get involved in those circular thought patterns. So that's that's the system, but the what I see as the game changer with it, because there are some systems that have this approach or maybe they have the mental or the physical side. The game changer is that in these situations where we're stressed or anxious, we're never going to remember to breathe in a certain way or to to have these kind of thought patterns right. unless it's a subconscious thing. Right. And so you have to program this method into the subconscious mind in the mm -hmm. same way that in freediving, I program my technique, everything that I want to achieve in the dive, mm -hmm. that goes into the subconscious because I want to shut down the rational mind. Mm -hmm. So if you're having an argument with your spouse or if you're in a business meeting, you want to be focused on that. You don't want to be thinking about like what you're doing to manage your stress. That has to be background subconscious. Mm. So the mental immune system is a way to set up an immune system in your subconscious to deal with stress and anxiety before you actually even are aware that you're experiencing it. I love it. It seems so applicable in today's world. <laughs> Yeah, everyone's been going through a lot in these last two or three years. So yeah. the, the statistics on, on mental health and these kind of problems are really alarming. Yeah, they really are. So I have small children as well. And mm. your mental immune system is uh, very interesting from a parental <laughs> standpoint. So how are, are you using a lot of these techniques with your young mm -hmm. children? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Anything, I mean, as you know, um, having kids is probably one of the most challenging things in life. And so, yeah, all those kind of problems, it, it definitely helps. And th the more I have difficulties, the more I appreciate the system, because like I say, these, these last few years have been tough for myself as, as for everyone. And so I feel like I've been able to, to work through it and, and kind of maintain an even keel thanks to techniques that I've developed in my freediving career. So it's another thing that the, the ocean has kind of rewarded me with or given me. Yeah, it's perfect. So one other thing I wanted to talk to you about, and it's this fascinating combination in freediving is that you're an athlete, right? Like you have, you have to maintain a certain physical capability to do what you do. But mm -hmm. unlike most athletes where the 
day of the event or the trial or the game or whatever, it's like an all out physical thing, like your heart rates up, you know, it's a big, a big stress event, right? It's the complete opposite for free divers. Calm is the name of the game. Like the harder you go, the worse you're going to perform, which is totally Mm -hmm. opposite of every other sport. So I was curious if you could kind of like speak to that and just, I mean, what does it take to like get to that level physically and then to just be like, okay, now we have to be calm. (laughs) Yeah, it is probably one of the only sports uh, that I can think of where you have to be 100% calm at the same time as having a a good degree of kind of workload physically as well, right? Swimming up from 100 meters where you're negatively buoyant does take a good degree of, of power. But if you do so in a kind of a panicky or or a agitated way, then you're going to cream through your oxygen stores a lot quicker. So it has right. to be powerful but relaxed, mm-hmm. calm and, and and serene but also efficient. And that that balance, yeah, is, is really difficult to to get right. But it's it it has so much similarities to our lives because mm-hmm. we're not kind of confronted with saber-toothed tigers uh, around the corner anymore (laughs) those kind of situations as much and in most of the the stressful situations that we encounter in our lives we need to be able to maintain calmness equanimity in order to be able to operate and perform in those situations to our absolute potential yeah that's a good point so at the end of each episode i have a series of questions i'd like to ask you ready okay sure yeah what is your favorite sea creature and why? Oh, um, seahorse. It has to be my favorite just because I kind of sometimes feel like it's, it, it seems one of the most kind of cumbersome and awkward creatures in the water and slow. <laughs> and sometimes, obviously, as, as human beings, we're not as adapted. So sometimes I feel like a seahorse. But more than that, I seem to they pop up at specific moments important moments in my first world record attempt in dean's blue hole we arrived at the platform and there was a seahorse hanging on to one of the anchoring ropes i'd never seen one in the blue hole before i don't know if i've seen one there since maybe once and it hung on for the whole time even though there was this kind of stream of bubbles coming up from the scuba diver the safety scuba and then at the end once we were done and dusted it let go and, and drifted off so I see them as kind of like a talisman. They've been that way since the start of my career. It definitely is like a talisman. How cool is that? What's not to love about a seahorse? They're fabulous. Yeah. And <laughs> there's so much. They've got an exoskeleton. The, the males give birth. It's crazy. Yes. They're awesome. What does the ocean mean to you? Yeah, the ocean is is everything. It's And it's been everything since I can remember, since my earliest memories on the boat. Back then, it was a home, a supermarket, a playground, a school, a means of transport. So that's pretty much everything there is, right? And even now, it's it's my career. It's my passion. It's, yeah, it's everything. If you were given a blank check, unlimited funding for any project or projects up to three, what would you use the money for? Gosh, I hadn't had a chance to think about that, but um, <laughs> definitely I think 
trying to resolve the plastic pollution crisis in the, in the waterways would be the biggest one. And there's been some good efforts at sea to clean up the plastic, but ultimately it has to be stopped at the source. So that goes back to our practices and the, especially areas of entry, like in Southeast Asia or the Caribbean and poorer countries where it's coming off the land into the rivers, and waterways and out to sea. So that would have to be probably number one. And then beyond that, setting up conservation areas so trying to just using all that funding that unlimited funding to set up as much completely protected areas so no fishing no kind of unsustainable practices at all and those areas feed the the neighboring areas as we know by now so if there's enough then it would allow better use of resources through fishing and, and everything else that would be number two. And then number three would be working with every threatened species in the in the sea, not just the, the cutes and smiley ones like the dolphins, but also the other ones which are just some kind of maybe bland fish that no one knows about, but could have just as integral a role in the ecosystem or more so than the others. So just targeting all of those and making sure that nothing else goes extinct on our watch. Yeah, great use of the funds. I like it. What is your favorite field story or stories to tell? And this could be just a magical day out in the ocean or it could be a day where things happened and it makes a really great story now. Oh, yeah, I've got a lot of stories and I'm not sure if it's my favorite one. It's just <laughs> the one that pops to mind at the moment. But there was... I was filming with Sachiko in, in Tahiti for a, a film called Woman, where they wanted to get a shot of her dancing underwater with whales. And she was pregnant with our first child at the time. Oh, cool. And we spent, I think, six weeks going out every day with the film crew in a boat to look for whales and, and swim with them. We had a permit for it in Tahiti. And at the end of that, it was finished, and we went out just for a day by ourselves with some friends who, who run a tour. And we're swimming with with whales. And at the very end of that day, when we're thinking about going back, I jumped in for one last dive and was swimming next to a mother and her calf, mm. where I just kind of slowly approached them. And I didn't want to to kind of interfere or impose myself, but I just swam at a distance alongside them in the direction that they were headed. And they were swimming kind of peacefully, and I was wasn't didn't have to move very quickly. But then I noticed that without doing so myself, the whales were shortening the distance between me, mm. between us. Uh, so they were getting closer and closer. I think the mother was on my side, the calf was on the other side. So uh, the mother, which is not normal, was the one who was actually approaching. Normally it's the calf who's like curious and mm. they, they come closer and then the mother comes between you and says, oh, get out of here. But this time the mother was was coming closer and to the point where she was literally this far away from me. Like I could have reached out and, and touched her and it was her eye that was right there. Uh, so her eye was was right next to my face and I could just, I was looking into her eye and she was looking into to mine. And you know there's a there's a particular feeling that you get when you know that there's a 
consciousness there mm -hmm. that's that's vividly aware of you and studying you and mm -hmm. and curious and like shakespeare talks about the eyes being the window to the soul mm -hmm. that's normally kind of applied to human eyes but in this case there was a window there that I was looking into and it was the most kind of powerful and revealing experience ever. Even before that, Sachiko and I talked about the, the whales being kind of like underwater gods, but mm -hmm. that experience definitely cemented that feeling. Yeah. There's something about whale eyes. They're just like all knowing. They're fascinating. Mm -hmm. One in a lifetime. Yeah. Yeah. So at the end of each episode, I'd like to leave the audience with a conservation ask to go forth and bring into the world. What would you like my audience to take from your episode today? To, to see the ocean as, as our home. Uh, we can, we do have the potential to be underwater, to move underwater as aquatic mammals. And so if it's, if it's our home, then we need to obviously keep it, keep it clean or at least make sure that our impact on it is is minimized and so try free diving because it will if you haven't already it will ignite more passion for the oceans and anyone who's a free diver in my experience is also a steward for the oceans because it's inseparable so that's yeah the best advice i can offer if my listeners want to find you, connect with you, learn more about you and your work, where's the best place to do so? So the websites are williamtrubridge.com and the mental immune system that I talked about is just mentalimmunesystem.com. And my social media handles, I think, are Will Trubridge on Instagram and William Trubridge on Facebook. I'm not really active on Twitter or TikTok yet. Okay. I'll put a link to that and everything else we chatted about in the show notes for today's episode as well. Awesome. Thanks, Car. Well, William, thank you so much for being on the show. I really enjoyed chatting with you. Yeah, me too. Thank you. Thank you very <laughs> much and all the best. Hey, do you want to help the oceans? Have you considered a career in marine biology, but maybe just aren't sure where to start? Head on over to my website, marinebio.life, and subscribe to my newsletter, when you subscribe, you'll receive a free PDF download where you'll learn the seven steps to becoming a marine biologist without the degree. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight from me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community. One person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. <laughs>